the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number nine. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Matthew Continetti, journalist, uh, intellectual historian of the uh, right in American politics, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon, and a columnist for Commentary Magazine. He's authored The Persecution of Sarah Palin and the K Street Gang and lives in Virginia. Matthew, great making your acquaintance. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. The book is called The Right. The subtitle, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. So I imagine the war is over how to define, who gets to define American conservatism. Is that what's going on? That's a safe assumption. Okay. Right. Um, one, of the, one of the arguments of the book is that um, even while uh, I believe that there is such a thing as American conservatism, um, it, it's a contested um, term. Mm-hmm. There are different versions, flavors of conservatism. And one of the um, misconceptions, I think, that many people have about conservatism is they assume that it's monolithic, that it's uniform, uh, that all conservatives think alike. Right. And uh, I wrote the book in order to correct that error. The yeah. truth is, Conservatives do not think alike, and they love to argue. <laughs> no, I, I I thought the book was marvelous. I read it through, and I'm recommending it to people because I think it helps orient us to what's been going on. Uh, anybody who observes just for a little while what's been going on in American politics understands that there's a lot of uh, realignments going on. It's a, a lot of bubbling up uh, of concern from uh, populist uh, groups. Um, so let me go back, though, to basic definitions. Even the word conservatism, does that refer to an ideology that has certain doctrines and principles, or does it mean simply uh, anti-revolutionary temperament, or, um, you know, is it just a gaggle of grievances that people have towards the elite? Right. I think uh, you're pointing to this confusion, um, over what conservatism is. Is it a disposition? Is it an attitude, a temperament? Um, or is it a program? Is it a series of policy positions? Um, I, I think that conservatism uh, has always been um, a kind of torn between the idea of going slow. We need to go slowly. We need to be careful that the unintended consequences of our public policies don't make for wor- a worse condition mm-hmm. than we already have, and going back, kind of trying to turn back the clock, as the saying goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are both types of conservatives. And then um, I would say that most of what we think of conservatism comes out of uh, European thinkers, um, figures from um, uh, the the opponents of the French Revolution on the on the continent of Europe, but also, of course, Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, yeah, uh, famously opposed the French Revolution as, as a um, member of Parliament in England. And uh, uh, what I try to do in the book is suggest that American conservatism is unique and distinct from Amer- from Europe European versions because 
the institutions that American conservatives want to conserve are the institutions of the American founding. They are, um, it's not blood and soil. It's not the established church. It's the uh, Constitution. It's the Declaration. Mm -hmm. It's the Federalist Papers and the constitutional traditions that flow outward from them. So it makes American conservatism unique. So uh, every time you hear conservative, it is important to try to figure out, well, what type of conservatism and what exactly are they trying to conserve? Uh, for me, the job of American conservatism is to protect and defend um, and uh, improve and expand uh, the, the legacy of the American founding. Hmm. I might be getting ahead of myself here, but I'm going to go anyways. And that is, there's now a group developing within American conservatism that uh, thinks that may, the founders had it wrong. Um, most of us who generally lean conservative or proudly say we're conservative, when we when we see things go, when things don't go the way we think they ought to go, uh, maybe same-sex marriage or easy access to pornography or a bloated federal bureaucracy, uh, we say to ourselves, we 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 need to go back to first principles. We need to redirect. Uh, the way the country is going. There's a group now, and I hope I'm not uh, misidentifying them, but I, people like Patrick Deneen, who talks about the failure of liberalism, uh, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard, uh, who seem to think that there's something wrong in the DNA at the very beginning. And there's also a group called Catholic Integralists, so, so Rabbi Mari, uh, part of that group, do they still, are they still conservatives if they think there's something fundamentally wrong in the founding? I don't think one could classify them as American conservatives, no. And, in fact, if when you uh, read, their, uh, read them closely or um, just listen to what they say in different fora, including social media, I think many, are, uh, many of these thinkers you mentioned are willing to say that they're not conservative. Okay. Uh, uh, by the American understanding. Some of them have a much more European idea of conservatism. Um, like I say, you know, conservatism in Europe in reaction to the French Revolution was the defense of the inherited institutions of, of Europe and of France. And those inherited institutions included the monarchy, right. they included the church, right? Yep. They included the nobility. Well, in the American context, uh, we have no king. We have no established church, and we have no titled classes, <laughs> right. and they're not in our founding documents. So American conservatives are trying to achieve and preserve something else. And for me, that is the traditions that flow from the American founding, primarily the tradition of limited government, of constitutional mm -hmm. government, of a rule of law that allows um, a freedom of action in the private sphere. Um, and uh, the, the the people that you mentioned, they they disagree with me yeah. <laughs> very, very, very vocally, right? And, and this is, I think, this speaks to the ongoing debates within the, the American right, right? And that's, in fact, one reason why the book is called The Right rather than The Conservatives, because yeah. I think that the right is a larger category okay. than just um, people who call themselves conservative. What do you make of the fascination with the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban? Does, yeah. I mean, that 
what what solutions does he have uh, to what problems we have? Well, um, it's a fascinating topic. I wrote recently about this for the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think that the the right's fascination with Viktor Orban stems from um, his uh, pursuit of the culture war in Hungary. Mm-hmm. So the, the the focus of the American right is shifting more and more onto uh, into culture. And when they look at Orban, they see a figure who has been able to um, uh, withstand the progressive left, but also in some cases uh, roll it back. Um, through uh, through using uh, political power basically to um, uh, uh, resist um, cultural institutions dominated by the progressive left, I think that's what attracts um, a lot of figures on the right to Orban. Um, they, it's not so much his you know alliance uh, or kind words for Vladimir Putin, uh, though some some do like that aspect yeah. too. <laughs> I've heard um, that. It's not it's not, you know, the fact that uh abortion is legal and available in Hungary and you know that there's very few gun uh, very few guns uh allowed by law in Hungary and the taxes in Hungary uh the VAT the you know the the, the consumer tax spend the um consumer tax mm-hmm. is uh is quite high. So they overlook all of that, <laughs> and, and they're, they're much more interested in how he wages the culture war, the fact that he, uh, you know, there is no um, uh, same-sex marriage or, sa- or same-sex adoption in Hungary, yeah. so, so they support that. Um, and they also like the fact that he is a fighter. This yeah. is something that's been coming up on the right over the last decade, mm-hmm. a sense among many cultural conservatives, religious conservatives in particular, that their political leadership does not actually fight for their causes. Yeah. Uh, it's what attracted them to them to Donald Trump um, beginning in 2016, and it's what attracts them to Viktor Orban today. Yeah, yeah. So I assume then that we're lacking in uh, uh, political heroes uh, that we can cheer or at least the contemporary political heroes, if we've got to look to, I think what you called it, a landlocked uh, state in uh, mid-Europe. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, it's, about the the size, size. it's about the size of Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, um, it, right. Uh, well, you know, what's interesting is uh, Hungary um, has always had a kind of a um, place on the right. Um, in my book, I discuss uh, the Hungarian Revolution mm-hmm. in the fall of 1956, and... Um, how American conservatives at the time were very, were just outraged at Dwight Eisenhower when he did not intervene um, uh, when the Soviet army marched in and quashed the um, rebellion against communism or against Soviet domination that was happening uh, in Hungary. So it was always kind of a cause of the right even then. And today, um, I think it's these cultural concerns that animated. Another reason, though, and it gets to your point about kind of where the right sees its political hero, heroes, is that from in many ways, Orban is the leader that um, some of these thinkers, these post-liberal thinkers, wanted Donald Trump to be. He's, he's, he's more effective, or seems to be more effective on the cultural scene than uh, Trump was. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is, well, if we 
we build up Orban, um, we don't necessarily have to reckon with Trump's um, uh, uh, failures or the places where Trump didn't do as well as possible. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, um, Governor DeSantis in Florida, uh, whether consciously or not, is actually imitating some of the kind of... um, the methods of Orban and the reason that Orban has been so successful, which is, you know, DeSantis is willing to say fire a prosecutor. Yeah. Um, or okay. DeSantis is willing to go after Disney, and that has attracted him a big fan base on the right. Very good. I want to come back because that that uh, the the strong man is an important uh, theme that I want to spend a little more time on when we come back. My guest, uh, Matthew Continetti, his book, The Right: The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. I recommend it to you highly. We'll have it available, of course, for you in our online bookstore as well. I'm Al Cresta. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number nine. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Matthew Continetti. He's the author of The Right. The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, the right being a term for various factions, uh, all striving to define uh, conservatism. And we were talking at the close of the last segment about uh, Governor DeSantis and the, his willingness to take a strong stand and to, uh, you know, be known for taking on uh, elites, taking on uh, strong opponents like Disney. I guess this is, and this is, this he's admired for that, and I, I agree with you. Uh, that's one reason that Donald Trump was so uh, effective too. No other president uh, in my lifetime has attacked the elites in media and academia in the entertainment industry more contemptuously and consistently than Donald Trump. Uh, and so. We've seen this before, and the question is always, though, to go on the attack is one thing, to govern is another, and even before that, to get elected is another. Uh, Trump was able to get elected, uh, even though he didn't have a majority uh, vote here. He managed to uh, get elected by attacking the elites. But he also had some strong policy positions. So the, the question I have for you, what is the relationship between pleasing or throwing the red meat for your supporters, uh, you know, and making sure that you've got a common enemy that you can attack? What's the relationship between that task and the relationship between coming up with clear thinking on policy? Well, I think you need a little bit of both, and my examples would be the 2016 campaign and the 2020 campaign. I mean, I think you're right that in the 2016 campaign, you had Trump and his personality and his kind of wild man um, tactics um, and his, you know, uh, mobilizing the Republican base, Mm -hmm. populist grassroots. But he also had some big ideas. I mean, he had Ronald Reagan's old slogan, Make America Great Again. He had Build the Wall. Um, He had, uh, you know, confront China uh, over its trade practices. 
Um, and he uh, definitely ran on a critique of the foreign policy of um, both Barack Obama and George W. Bush. So there were ideas that were that were motivating him. When you get to the 2020 candidacy, there was definitely a lot of mobilizing of the base, a lot of red meat, as you say. Yeah. Um, there, not, there wasn't really, as I saw it, um, kind of new ideas that could inform a second Trump term. Yeah. You know, toward the very end of the campaign, in the final um, kind of town hall uh, uh, meeting um, between uh, uh, Trump, um, he he made an argument about you know the importance of energy and. Um, natural gas and was saying that Biden was uh, going to hurt our energy industry. And, you know, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but that didn't show up until about a week before the election. And because of the, the mail-in ballots during the COVID year, uh, many, many, many Americans had already voted and probably voted after that first debate, which was just, uh, you know, it was unwatchable. It was also indecipherable. Yeah. You couldn't understand what anyone was saying. No, it was terrible. Yeah. Both candidates and the moderator were all yelling at each other. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that exposes a difference. And of course, in my, you know, Trump won the first campaign where he had he had the base and he had the ideas. Right. And he lost the second campaign where he just had the base and very few ideas for a second term. So I think that illustrates the importance of ideas. You agree with uh, Bill Barr that the only person who could have beat Trump in 2020 was Trump himself? I I do. I mean, um, I agree with a lot of Barr's assessments. Um, The, you know, it's remarkable to me that more attention hasn't been paid to uh, to all the money that went into the Trump campaign in 2020, and and almost all of it w- was just frittered away um, to the point that when the general election began after Labor Day in 2020, the Trump campaign was kind of scrambling to raise more money. Hmm. Um, really, I, I, I course, actually was you know, I was unaware of that. Yeah, I mean, this is a billion dollar campaign that they went in, and then it just kind of all vanished. Hmm. Um, and uh, so I think that kind of um, lack of management, I guess, yeah. um, hurt him, and uh, as well as his own, um, you know, overreach in a lot of places yeah. um, hurt him. You know, the, the thing is, too, like, I always thought that, you know, he would attack Hunter Biden, um, but the attacks he made on Hunter Biden were about Hunter Biden's personal behavior. They weren't about the lobbying and the connection, right, right? right which right. is which is the real critique of Hunter Biden. But um, so the, so there wasn't much, uh, there wasn't effective management in that campaign, I, and there wasn't uh, an effective message. And, you know, as a political reporter for 20 years, that mean that suggests to me it will lose. Yeah. And he yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go back to uh, a little bit earlier. Let's go to the rise of movement. It was called Movement Conservatism, beginning the, with Bill Buckley, National Review. And he had, Buckley had the task of trying to uh, develop, a, in his allies, of course, to develop a, a, a conservatism that could, uh, you know, stand up uh, in the culture, fight back against uh those uh, academic elites, those, uh, corporate elites that had been uh, keeping conservative ideas on the margins. 
he his second book is written uh, as a defense of Joe McCarthy. Uh, that's his after. Uh, I think the book comes out after McCarthy has been. Uh, uh, you know, well, it comes out one month before he's censured. Well, okay, that's it. One month before In November, November nineteen fifty four. Yeah, yeah. yeah. censured in December. Yeah. So was. I guess the question I have, we look at McCarthy, when we think of McCarthy today, we think of somebody who's been so discredited, and, you know, we, we see the clips uh, of him, you know, where's your, do you have no dignity? Why was McCarthy so loved by the, by the uh, conservative movement of that day? Well, because uh, for many of the same reasons that people love Donald Trump, and people love uh, Pat Buchanan, and he was a fighter. Uh, he was uh, saying things that uh, people felt uh, you weren't allowed to say. Um, he was trying to root out the communists from the government. And um, the American right uh, has always been very much anti-communist. So um, they, they, they rallied to McCarthy's cause because it was a cause they believed in and but they didn't. They didn't necessarily uh, agree with the cr- criticisms of his of the means by which he pursued um, that cause. And if, 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 for 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 most of McCarthy's supporters, the danger of communism was far greater than whatever McCarthy might do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a similar um, dynamic and with uh, supporters of. President, former President Trump, that for them, the dangers facing America, uh, up to and including the dissolution of America, are far greater than uh, all of Trump's eccentricities and um, outlandish behaviors. Right. right. Uh, so I, I do think that there are similarities between the two political figures. The major difference, of course, is that McCarthy uh, was censured by the Senate, and then um, he died in 1957. Trump became president. Right. Trump is the f- first populist since Andrew Jackson yeah. uh, to be the president of the United States. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's amazing. But what they shared, what uh, President Trump and Joe McCarthy shared, is not just that we have uh, enemies outside of our borders, but that there are people who are here in our country, in our government, who are working to subvert uh, mm-hmm. uh, America. And is Donald Trump the only president in recent memory who uh, had that idea that somehow the deep state was working to undermine authentic America? Yeah, I, I don't think any other president has ever put it in those in those terms. Right. I mean, you know, Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan, talked about big government, right? And um, you know, the heavy hand of government was, um, you know, squashing America's potential, um, keeping it down. Um, it was, he did not talk about a deep state conspiracy. Um, uh, and you're you're absolutely right to draw the attention uh, to draw the parallel between McCarthy and Trump and their focus on the inner uh, enemies of America, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the differences that happened in conservatism after McCarthy's fall was that 
figures like William F. Buckley Jr. and leaders like Barry Goldwater shifted the focus from internal counter-subversion to external rollback of communism. Yeah. So they they were they they you know they were still willing to of course critique liberals and pick fights with them, but they weren't talking about the inner the inner threat as much as they were talking about the larger external threat of the Soviet Union, its armies, its nuclear arsenal, and its uh, propaganda apparatus. So so does that then play into Buckley's uh, marginalizing of the John Birch Society, trying to keep them out of the movement, so to speak? That's right. I mean, after McCarthy, uh, you have kind of the elite, the conservative elite, at least, go in the direction of Buckley and Goldwater, but the populist grassroots um, late in the 1950s and into the early 1960s really rallied around the cause of the John Birch Society, which was an organization um, dedicated to um, anti-communism, but whose founder, uh, Robert Welch, uh, was a uh, conspiracy theorist. I mean, he believed Eisenhower was a communist. Yeah. Um, and everything he, any setback in the Cold War, he attributed to. Um, Americans working on behalf of the Soviet Union. Um, and the John Birch Society became very popular, um, despite or perhaps because of its conspiratorial bent. And uh, Buckley and Goldwater was very leery of the society, and it took a long time to separate conservatism from the conspiracism of the John Birch Society. Yeah. John Birch Society eventually came out against the Vietnam War, too, didn't they? That was the break yeah, that, in 1965, and yeah. that was when they the conservatives said, well, you can't be part of our movement anymore. Yeah, okay. Well, hold it there, uh, Matthew. We'll be back in just a moment. My guest is uh, Matthew Continetti. The Right, the Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number nine. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Matthew Continetti, author of The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Many of us remember uh, George Wallace, and we tend to think of him, of course, as the segregationist governor of Alabama. Uh, we may not know that he had a strong following among fundamentalist Protestant Christians. In fact, was given an honorary doctorate in 1964 by Bob Jones University. In 1968, uh, Pat Buchanan points out that in his White House Wars uh, memoir of the Nixon years, uh, points out that Nixon was really concerned uh, about Wallace as a presidential contender in 1968. He, he thought that uh, Wallace would be able to peel conservative votes away from him and make him weaker uh, over against Hubert Humphrey. How important is George Wallace, his his place in that 1968 uh, election, his his manner, his tactics? How important is he to conservatives? Well, it's an interesting way to frame the question now. I, I mean, I think Wallace, it was uh, just one more example of the populist tendency in American politics, which stretches back to the American founding and kind of runs up through to today. Um, the Wallace of 68 and the 70s was not quite the Wallace who's um, 
you know, segregation forever. Right, almost. right. Um, he had, he decided to kind of minimize that. I mean, people knew where he stood, I guess, on race issues. He didn't need to talk about them all that <laughs> right. much. And instead he broadened his critique um, and went after the pointy heads, right? He went after the professors. He said there wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the two parties. And he really found huge audiences among um, kind of the working class um, uh, ethnic voters up north in the, in, in the cities. And what that revealed to Buchanan and to another analyst for Nixon named Kevin Phillips was mm-hmm. that in order to bring about the new majority that Nixon wanted to create, a new Republican majority out of the ashes of FDR's New Deal majority, you would have to find some way to bring the Wallace vote and connect it to the kind of traditional Republican vote, the, you know, Chamber of Commerce types, the kind of um, uh, small town uh, types, and, and, um, and of course, the Californians. Um, and, and that was kind of Nixon's project. And so what, what I found striking in researching and writing my book was that many of the reactions to Wallace on the right of the day, and, and I mean here the populist right, were very similar to reactions to Donald Trump in our time, which is the, sa- the same types of things that we've been talking about in our conversation. Anytime National Review and William F. Buckley Jr. would criticize Wallace, they would get a flood of letters to the editor saying, you don't, you guys are a bunch of, you know, intellectual sissies. You don't know what, it, what Wallace is up to. Right. He fights, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. that, that stance of just someone who's going to take it to the elite and to the establishment is, is extremely powerful um, in, during uh, certain moments in American history. And I think, you know, it's interesting, and I'll just make this point briefly. I think those moments tend to coincide with wars and perceptions of American losses and wars. And so Wallace, you know, his height was during the Vietnam era and um, all of the uh, polarization and, and battles and anxieties on the domestic front. And um, then, too, our own populist moment really kind of comes out or happens right after um, America's experience in Iraq, yeah. um, where, the, you know, that 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 debate was extremely vociferous, right. Um, right. and a lot of people turned against the war. They turned against the idea of American involvement in the world, um, and and so you had a similar populist moment. I know you've got another commitment. Uh, I'll ask you just one more question, uh, and that is uh, Donald Trump has managed to secure about 80 percent of the white evangelical Protestant vote. Uh, th- that's been surprising to a lot of people. Uh, is the so-called religious right going to continue to be an important force in American conservatism? I believe the answer is yes. Okay. Um, even though we've seen the growth of the um, non-affiliated population in the United States, uh, I still think that um, evangelical Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity, plays a big role in Republican politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump was able to went over those voters, um, mainly by kind of moving toward them, yeah. you know, yep. by, by embracing the pro-life cause, by embracing Israel, um, by embracing military spending, um, by um, saying that he would appoint judges like Antonin Scalia. Right. right. Um, 
that kind of solidified that connection, um, and it's had effects on uh, on the, on the evangelical church um, uh, and on the Republican Party. They're probably unanticipated, but I think that connection is still very strong. Yeah. Um, and even today, when we look at some of these debates that are happening with regard to parental involvement in education, for example, um, you know, I think religion plays a role there. I think I think parents who want to raise their children in traditional religious backgrounds are looking at some of the stuff that are that's being propagated by the public school system, and they're saying enough, yeah. right? And, yeah. Um, Absolutely. So there, that kind of that thread of religious belief. Um, runs through my history of American conservatism, and I do think that having a, a vision of the world um, where it's not just kind of atoms in the void, right, a right. belief in a transcendental right. a dimension to human experience um, is a fundamental trait of conservatism. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Matthew, I appreciate the book. Great job, and thanks for taking the time to be with me today. Thank you, Al. Matthew Continetti, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism. Uh, Let me take a few minutes here uh, to reflect on this last point. And um, we had originally hoped to be a little longer in conversation, but uh, he had another commitment that cut us a little short. But here's the point I wanted to get to, and uh, I think America is— divided. But I think it's divided over a very substantial issue. Um, I, I, I think it's divided over the idea of moral authority. Um, I think that what we've got, uh, we've got a, a large number of Americans. Uh, you, you see them uh, going to church. You see them um, you know, raising families and children. And you see that they actually believe that they're not inventing uh, moral authority as they go along. They actually think there is some sort of external, uh, identifiable source of moral authority. For Jews, it's the Torah. For uh, evangelical Protestants, it's the Scriptures. For Catholics, it's the magisterium, uh, teaching authority of the Catholic Church. We actually, And actually, for even humanists of a certain uh, sort, it, there's natural law. Uh, a certain type of understanding of natural law, Uh, there's a belief that we're not inventing morality as we go along. Um, We are not, uh, might say, creating our own reality, that the heart of freedom is not to just impose your interpretation of things on the world, but it's to discover what's real, because there is an ultimate reality, God. And so this um, Donald Trump made common cause uh, with conservative Catholics, with evangelical Protestants. Uh, And I think the reason is that not only was he a strong man, a tough man, right, a guy who's going to go after those elites in our culture who have been really mercilessly uh, demeaning uh, committed Catholics, committed uh, evangelical Protestants. Uh, he, he, it's not just that he was, you know, my bu- my bully is stronger than your bully. That it wasn't that kind of thing. It was the fact that I, when I 
heard him in New York. I was there with a, uh, a few hundred uh, Christian leaders and broadcasters. Uh, he made it clear that Christians in America are going to have to fight. We're about six Catholics in this group, mostly evangelical Protestants. But that was when he made the announcement about the Supreme Court justices, and he had a list from the Federalist Society and from Heritage Foundation, and he promised to appoint judges uh, in the tradition of Antonin Scalia. But he was very, very direct in telling evangelical Protestants, because that was the primary group there, uh, telling them that they, they're going to have to fight for religious liberty. And he was right. Uh, and this remains for us who believe that God exists and that we are to live faithfully uh, in accord with his way of life. It's, we have to have the freedom to do that. And the secularist religion, because uh, that's partially what we're seeing here, is the imposition of a, a philosophy called secularism. We're seeing that imposed uh, on America. That has a tendency to metastasize and eventually strangle out religious liberty. Why? Because God is higher than government, because there is an authority above the secular authorities. And eventually the secular authorities are impatient with that because they can't control. That's something they can't control is your faith in God. And I, I think, again, the culture wars are an expression of this. Uh, you know, you get to, uh, when you get to ask yourself, look at the pro-life movement, for instance. Uh, pro-life movement is doesn't necessarily have to be religious people, but it turns out that it are, there are religious people who dominate the pro-life movement. Why? Because we actually believe that God is a creator and that he creates human life, and we don't have the uh, authority to go and hack it up in abortion. There's a certain sacredness that we want to show human life, even in the womb. There's something more than ourselves. We have an obligation to certain transcendental truths. Uh, we can't just do what we are conveniently, uh, what, what, is, what we think is in our own convenience. We have to stop. We have to go slowly. We have to think about our moral obligations. We cannot simply define uh, morality by our desires. For those who don't believe that God exists, ultimately there is nothing superior to themselves than powerful individuals or powerful governments. The founding fathers of the United States understood this. They, you know, you can argue all you want about the degree to which they were, various of them were Christians or not. Um, that's not the fundamental point. The fundamental point is virtually to a man, with the exception of maybe Thomas Paine, who's often not even considered one of the founding fathers, uh, they all believed that there was a transcendental moral order. And they believed that America was fundamentally a religious nation. The Constitution only worked 
for a people who had an understanding of God. John Adams wrote on this explicitly. George Washington's farewell address explicitly says this. And so America right now is fighting over the question, is God really there? 